Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your host, J.W. McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new work from our free online publication, Etched Onyx Magazine. Please join me and co-host Melissa Collings after the reading when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All works, stories, and poems are copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Today's story is My People, written by Eric Decons and narrated by Melissa Collings. Settle in and enjoy. My People, written by Eric Decons. Close the window! I shout over the roar of wind. A rush of stifling humidity displaces the air conditioning, and my back sweats against the seat cushion. Ashlyn's long blonde hair is a windswept mess as she sticks her head out to take in the towering stalks lining both sides of the road. The corn is taller than me. I saw a movie where a girl gets decapitated because she was sticking her head out the window. Ashlyn laughs. What's the movie called? I can't believe I agreed to a road trip with the ten-year-old sister I never wanted. I reach for the power window switch, but return my hand to the steering wheel. She's been through so much in her short life. Who am I to take away a small pleasure? Please, just pull your head back in. You scare me. That's a strange name for a movie. Ashlyn frowns and wrinkles up her nose. She settles back against her seat, but doesn't roll up the window. My sister's small and delicate. Nothing like my big-boned, brutish self. I resent her for it. My mother's voice rises above the wind. Make her feel safe, Chloe, like she's wrapped in a warm blanket of love. That was after I yelled at Ashland for using one of my tampons as a microphone to belt out black pink. How much longer? Ashland puts her feet up on the dashboard and watches the seemingly endless, arrow-straight country highway roll by to the soundtrack of our humming tires. Not long. It feels like I'm in one of those dreams where I'm running but not getting anywhere. The GPS says we're on the right road, but we haven't seen another car in almost an hour. I read that Google Maps is unreliable as you near the border. In one quarter mile, turn left, the GPS's soothing female voice instructs. I slow the car and peer into the dry tan stalks, standing shoulder to shoulder like sentries. Turn left, the voice demands. Turn, Chloe, Ashlyn says. Turn here. Where? There's no road. I turn the GPS off. There. That fixed it. That's how you deal with every problem. Ashlyn folds her thin arms against her chest. I drove you here to the middle of nowhere, didn't I? So I'm a problem? I berate myself for losing patience with her again. I didn't mean it that way. I turn up the air conditioning. I'm not a cruel person. I've tried my best to make Ashland feel welcome since my parents found her rummaging through our trash can, filthy, hungry, and alone. She was seven when they adopted her. 
I was 13, a sheltered kid in a town where everybody saw the world in the same way, and the other side was ignorant and misguided. At midnight, when the red-slash-blue partition became official, I gazed at the flash of fireworks above my bedroom window without thinking about what they foretold. I was surprised when I went to school the next day and saw the empty seats. The teacher said they'd move to the other side of the border where they could be with their own kind. Are we lost? Ashlyn asks. We're fine. We'll be in Terrytown soon. Terrytown is near the border between Indiana and Illinois, red and blue. Ashlyn's family lived there before the partition. My parents said she must have been separated from them during the violence and turmoil that followed. We found their address and email on the internet, but our messages came back as undeliverable. My mother insisted we had to go through the proper channels. I suspected my parents didn't want to give her back, but I did. When I got my driver's license, Ashland begged me to take her here. I agreed. My phone chimes with the text. I hold it so Ashland can't see. Where the hell are you? I've called the police. I turn off my phone. Was that your mom? Ashland asks. She's worried about us. She's worried about you. She loves both of us. I love her too, but you're not my people. I accelerate and the corn becomes a tawny blur. She's right. Ashland and I are oil and water. The only thing we agree on is that this is for the best. But her repudiation still makes my heart ball up like a tangled cord. Terrytown is like a ghost town. Not that it was probably much before the partition. I slow to a crawl on the main drag. It's deserted. The shop windows dark and clouded. A bridal store displays a forlorn wedding dress behind yellowed glass. Hank's ice cream! Ashlyn shouts. A weathered sign hangs above the empty storefront. Do you remember it? She nods, excitement lighting up her face. Best shakes in town. I make out a sign in the window. Best shakes in town. Is her memory real or did she just read it? We used to come here Saturdays, Ashlyn says. My brothers and me would run around while mom and dad shopped. We'd beg for ice cream, so dad would give us each a quarter. A quarter? Sure you're not remembering some old movie? Ashland glares at me. You're the one that likes movies. We find a Clark station on the edge of town with its bay door open, but no mechanic or cars inside. I pull up next to the pumps. Let's stop here and ask for directions. The window displays advertisements for smokeless tobacco and Miller Lite. While Ashland picks out snacks, I approach the guy behind the counter. He has long, silken hair and wears a faded Neil Young concert t-shirt. I put on what I hope is a flirtatious smile as I run my fingers through my ash-brown mane and peel it for my sweaty neck. We've got no gas, he says. We've been waiting all week for a delivery. We're good. We're looking for an address. One, two, four, eight, Carter Road, Ashlyn calls out from the candy aisle. He eyes her as if he's trying to place her face. Take a ride at the stop sign. Carter Road's about a mile outside of town. Ashlyn dumps handfuls of chocolate bars and chips on the counter. It's my house. He scrutinizes her. What's your name? Ashlyn Stevens. He scratches his chin. No Stevens around here. They would have lived here before the partition, 
I say. He quickly rings up our purchases, keeping his eyes on the register. Those people all left, went across the border. Maybe a few didn't, I say. Doubtful. He dumps the candy into a plastic bag and shoves it at Ashland. That'll be twenty-three ninety-five. Ashland pulls a Hershey bar from the bag as we walk back to our car. We climb in and I gaze down the empty street while Ashland wolfs down candy. Foreboding itches at my skin like a rash. I think we should go home. We're almost there. I grip the steering wheel. It's not like I don't want to get rid of her. Your family isn't here anymore. Chocolate clings to Ashlyn's lips. They wouldn't have left without me. How do you know that? Everything was crazy with people trying to get to the other side. She stuffs the empty chocolate wrapper into the trash bag on the floor. Her face is tight, her eyes firm. We'll find them. They're still here. A street sign lying in the weeds tells us we've found Carter Road. It winds into woods past ugly ranch-style homes set far back at the end of long, unpaved drives. A few cars and pickup trucks set in the driveways. But there's no one outside. We slow at each mailbox to read the numbers. Many are blank. I pull up alongside a big mailbox wrapped in a cover that features bees and sunflowers. That's it! Ashlyn shouts. One, two, four, eight! The house is hidden behind slender pine trees. A neat red barn sits on the opposite side of the drive. A pickup truck with its hood up is parked between them. Are you sure? That's my room at the corner. I had a big bed with a curtain around it like a princess. The walls were pink. Our tires crunch on the gravel. A man steps out from behind the hood and wipes his hand on a rag. He looks to be in his early 40s, with wavy brown hair and a friendly face. Do you recognize him? Ashlyn pouts. Maybe he's a cousin. As soon as we step from the car, a dozen miniature goats stampede out of the barn and up to a fence. Ashlyn runs to them and laughs as they nuzzle her hand. The man watches her, smiling. They like you. Ashlyn wrinkles her brow. I don't remember them. I got them last year and put up the barn. You live nearby? Ashlyn leans over the fence and lets a goat lick chocolate from her face. I used to live here. The smile is still plastered on the man's face, but it's a cheap knockoff, not the genuine article. I think you've got the wrong house. Is this 1248 Carter? I ask. He nods slowly. Who are you? Ashlyn straightens. I'm Ashlyn Stevens. He twists the rag around his hand as if he's about to punch through glass. No Stevens around here that I know of. Ashlyn nods toward the house. The living room sunken. One time when I was little, I was running and fell face first down the steps. The kitchen has a leaky faucet. My mom was always bugging my dad to fix it. The man's eyes are glued on Ashland like she's a tiger just emerged from the woods. I put a protective arm around her. You're confused, he says. This is my house. Ashland stands tall, refusing to be intimidated. I'm proud of her. It's ours. Maybe they had to leave for a while. Nobody made anybody leave. It was their choice. The man's voice is a threatened dog's growl. We bought this house from the government. I've got the deed to prove it. I pull on Ashlyn's arm. Let's go. You've got no right to be here, 
Ashlyn says. This belongs to my family. You're the one that doesn't belong here. You're trespassers. Now get off my land. The man stomps back to his truck, yanks open the door, and reaches for a rifle mounted in the truck's back window. Come on, I drag her, yank open the door, and push her in. I slam it shut and run to the driver's side. The man advances on us, the rifle gripped tightly at his side. I turn the key with a shaking hand, and the engine roars to life. I slam the transmission into reverse. As I swerve backwards down the drive, the man shouts after us, Go to Antioch! That's where you'll find your people. I hit the road and peel out, leaving the man in a flurry of dust and burning rubber. My heart is still pounding when we reach the main road. I can't think and can barely see, so I pull over into the weeds. I slam my palm against the dashboard. Fuck! It's all right. Ashlyn's voice is eerily calm. He said they're at a place called Antioch. Let's go find them. I grab my phone and type in Antioch near me. The web loads agonizingly slow. There's no town around here named that. Maybe it's on the other side? Maybe that's where they are? Ashlyn's voice breaks. Then we can't go. My hands are shaking. I just want to get us out of here. Please keep looking. I sigh and scroll through the search results. There's a church a few miles away. Antioch Methodist. Then let's go there. Apprehension continues to gnaw at my gut. Why would they be there? We can check it out. Maybe they left a note. I sigh. If we don't satisfy her hunger now, she'll come back by herself when she's older. I won't be able to protect her then. Ashlyn watches me, waiting. All right, let's go to Antioch. The cornfields end as we near the border. The fields are fallow and choked with weeds. The road deteriorates, and I have to slow for potholes and broken pavement. That must be it. I point to a small brick church on top of a hill. A rusted metal gate blocks the gravel drive. A no trespassing sign hangs from it. Ashlyn rolls down the window, her eyes wide as she takes it in. Do you remember it? I'm hoping she doesn't and that we're at the wrong place. The cold chill creeping up my spine warns me away. I think so? Ashland's voice is uncertain. Ashland, there's no cars, nobody's here, and the sign says we can't go up there. She turns to me and squeezes my hand. When she first came to us, her hands were so ragged and dirty I didn't want to touch them. Now her palm is smooth like mine. I can go up by myself, Chloe. My muscles tense at the thought of Ashland out of my sight. We're in this together. I climb out of the car. The heat is oppressive and my legs weaken. I want to turn back, but I need to do this for Ashland. A rusted padlock secures the gate. I open the trunk and find the tire iron. I swing it at the lock over and over, imagining it's the man now living in Ashland's house, and at least some of my blows strike home. Finally, the lock breaks. I pull it open and toss it into the weeds. We bounce up the pockmarked drive. The chassis scrapes as we cross a gully. I park in front of the church's big wooden doors. The windows are boarded up, and one of the frames and the surrounding bricks are black from a fire. Wait here. I get out and try the door. It's locked. I turn back to Ashland. It's definitely closed. They're here. I can feel them. Her eyes are intense. It scares me. Nobody's been here for a long time. We should go home and search the internet again. I'm sure we'll find them. 
We have to look inside. Stay here. I try to sound firm, but it comes out more like a plea. I grab the tire iron from the back seat and walk around to the church's side. The windows here are boarded up too, so I pry off one of the boards. The rusted nails release with a reproachful squeal. I stand on tiptoes and peer inside. The sanctuary is dark. I make out rows of empty pews, some broken and tipped over. A toppled lectern reminds me of a dictator's statue after a revolution. A cloud moves on, and sunlight spills through the open window and across the room. The pews are splintered, the walls scarred with holes. Shell casings lie scattered on the floor among dark stains like spilled wine. I stumble backwards and utter a muffled scream. I need to find her, get in the car, and drive away from here. I can't let her see this. The sound of another car coming up the drive sends me into a panic. There's no time to board up the window again. I run to the car, but Ashland isn't there. A sheriff's cruiser slowly climbs the hill. I whirl in every direction. She must have hidden. I will myself to appear calm, even while my heart explodes in my chest. The sedan, coated in dust, pulls up behind my car, blocking us in. A stout man climbs out, dressed in a tan uniform, a pistol strapped to his hip. His face is a topographic map that speaks of long days under cloudless skies. Got a call about a trespasser. His voice is a calm pool. He hitches up his trousers and approaches. Maybe he doesn't know there's two of us. My words hurry out. I was lost. I don't see suspicion in his face, only curiosity. Where are you heading? My eyes sweep the weeds, looking for Ashland. If he takes me to jail, I can't leave her here. I just went for a drive. I've never been here before. He nods towards a dark, hazy line on the horizon. The border's only a mile away, so folks are suspicious of strangers. They're afraid of an invasion, but I figure that's the Border Patrol's job. The rhythmic squeak of rusted metal rises from behind the church, over and over, like a sickly heartbeat. My own heart almost stops. Is it Ashland? The man pays no attention to it. He's gazing at the locked doors. Why'd you come here, to this church? If he finds the uncovered window, he'll know I've exposed the town's secret. What will he do to us? I smile and try to sound like a tourist. I love old abandoned places. I wanted to take a look. He raises his eyes to the small steeple topped with a wooden cross. People think this place is cursed. I utter a forced laugh. I don't really believe in that kind of stuff. Can't say I do either. He nods toward a blackened window frame. Somebody tried to burn it down, but the fire wouldn't catch. Then they brought in an excavator, but it poured so hard it got stuck in the mud. They say ghosts protect it. The squeaking continues, but he still doesn't acknowledge it. My mind races through my options, but I really don't have any other option than to continue this conversation. Maybe ghosts are memories we hold on to even if we want to forget, I say. He gazes at the horizon, not speaking for a long time. When I first came here, I poked around, asked questions. I got nowhere. Seems like a collective amnesia fell on this place. So he knows what happened inside the church. Maybe he knows about Ashland's family, too. Have you heard of a family named Stevens that used to live here? The squeaking feels like a part of the landscape, a natural occurrence accompanying the drone of crickets. The sheriff shakes his head very slowly, as if it's an effort. 
I'm new to these parts, so I don't know the folks that lived here before. Maybe someday there'll be an accounting of what happened, but right now, the wound's too raw to touch. My fist squeezes tight. I want to demand answers, throw the doors open, and make people face the truth, though I know how much that would hurt Ashland. But you're the sheriff. My voice is like ragged fingernails. That doesn't mean a whole lot when you're not from around here. Then why'd you come? He brushes away a fly circling his head, or maybe he's dismissing my question, but he turns back to me and his dark eyes seem heavy with the weight this place carries. A few days after the partition, I'm heading to my favorite fishing spot when I come across a roadblock. A man holding a rifle shouts, Are you red or blue? Neither, I said. I'm going fishing. The guy with the gun points at the high school parking lot. Buses are idling there. Some say Indiana on the front, others Illinois. People line up to get on. This town's in no man's land now, the man with the gun says. You've got to choose a bus and get out of here. How am I supposed to choose? I say. Who'd you vote for in the last election? He asks. I was fishing that day, I tell him. Where do you get your news from? The fishing report? He's losing patience with me. Fishing time's over, he says. You gotta pick which side you're on. The sheriff crushes the remains of a rusted Schlitz can under his heavy black shoe. You know how I chose? How? I picked the shortest line. I tense as a pickup roars past on the road below. It slows slightly but keeps going, leaving a cloud of dust that settles slowly. The sheriff nods towards the squeaking. Let's go get your friend. Best you be on your way. She's my sister, I tell him. I follow the sheriff to the back of the church. We stand on the edge of what must have once been the churchyard, where potlucks were spread across picnic tables now covered with twigs and dead leaves. A swing set rises amidst blooming pink and white swamp milkweed. Ashland sits on one of the wooden seats. She grips the rusted chains that squeak as she leans back and sails high into the blue sky. Her bright new tennis shoes seem to almost touch the clouds before she hurtles back to earth, only to ascend in the opposite direction. She closes her eyes and, at least for the moment, her face is serene. The sheriff stands behind me. I take my time contemplating the scene. Beyond the tables and the swing set, the earth is elevated slightly, forming a large rectangle, as if that portion was dug up and the dirt replaced again. My feet feel as if they're sinking into soft earth, stranding me here. I read about victims of trauma who refuse to acknowledge reality even when it's right in front of them. I can't rip the frail fabric of hope from Ashlyn's eyes. I have to carry this burden until she's old enough to face the truth. I close my eyes and the squeaking becomes the slow tick of a grandfather clock. Whatever the future holds, nothing will separate us. Because she's my people. You've just listened to My People by Eric Decons. Welcome to the post-story portion of the podcast. I'm Melissa Collings, joined, as always, by the wonderful J.W. McAteer. Hello. <laughs> Today we have Eric on the show to talk about the short story you just heard and his life as a writer. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. We're excited <laughs> to have you here. 
Eric is a longtime literature lover who received his MA in film from Northwestern University, went on to assist in short film production, and wrote screenplays. Now he's transitioned into fiction writing. So let's find out more. Who is Eric Decons? Well, um, I, I'll start from the beginning. I grew up in uh, Terre Haute, Indiana, which is a Union's town, uh, coal mining town, or was, um, which began to decline after World War II. It was the home of uh, the great socialist uh, leader, Eugene Debs. But since the Obama years has taken a decided turn towards a red town. Uh, My brother and I still own the homestead there. Um, But I also, my main residence is in Evanston, Illinois, which is very much a blue town. Um, (laughs) So it's interesting because I, I spend a fair amount of time at the house in Terre Haute. It's a wonderful place to write. It's very quiet a few things to disturb me. Um, So I I shuttle back and forth and... um, How far apart? They're 200 miles away. Okay. So, you know, I'll go there for a week or two and uh, I can knock out a lot of pages on the novel I've been working on. I like that. Or short stories. It's a great place to write, but I write a lot here too. So... um, it's it's an interesting uh, contrast, but in many ways, I find people are the same in both places. So, as Melissa said, I went to Indiana University undergrad, uh, studied comparative literature with an emphasis in film studies. I got interested in film and uh, went on to Northwestern for grad school, but I never saw myself as a writer I always believed that writers were born not made (laughs) I believed in the movie version of the writer where you see somebody sitting at his typewriter writing the first draft frantically with the support of his usually his girlfriend it's (laughs) usually a male and you know pulls out the finished manuscript his girlfriend declares it's the uh, greatest thing she's ever read he sends it to his editor who immediately publishes it uh without any changes so i love this right. image that you have yeah, a writer um, in your mind so this is what you tried to be you tried to mimic this right well i never tried to mimic it but you know whenever i tried to write it it stunk <laughs> which it's supposed to stink. That's the part I didn't yes. understand. Right. Um, you know, I had friends who are also writers who seemed to have much more confidence. And so after grad school, I spent a lot of time uh, helping other people produce their films, produced a couple of short films that went on to festivals, things like that. Um, worked in television production, and it wasn't until I picked up by accident, really, uh, Julia Cameron's book, uh, The Artist's Way, which many people know. It's basically a, a recovery guide for frustrated creatives, and I read it and started to do the exercises in it, and it really 
totally changed my view of myself. Yeah, um, that's great. I love that. I know. I began to write screenplays, and guess what? They still stunk. But <laughs> but at that point, you didn't care as much. Right. You realized right. it was part of the process. I understood that it was part of the process. I learned a lot, um, met a lot of people, had a great mentor in uh, Pam Pierce, who started this organization called Sin Story here in Chicago, eventually moved out west. Um started a screenwriters group um, oh, wow sent my screenplays out uh did well in a couple of big contests won a couple of smaller contests i won a fellowship um nice. got some interest in some hollywood people but it never mm. quite gelled into an actual sale yeah. Um, and a big part of that is that I did not move out to Hollywood. I huh. Nothing against L.A., but I don't like L.A. It's not my vibe at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As, as somebody who lives out there once said, it's the kind of place where they detail the underbody of their cars. <laughs> <laughs> I've never um, heard it described quite like that. Yes, That's right, interesting. Right. So... Um, and, you know, that's a hindrance of anybody who wants to be a screenwriter. You, yeah, it's, sure. It's so much about uh, who you know. Yeah. Um, so I never quite made it to that level. And one morning I woke up with this idea for a character and a novel, or a character and a story for a novel in my head. And the interesting thing is it was a romance novel, which oh, something no I don't way. I don't read romance novels. <laughs> I love romance in books, but more in literary kind of novels. Interesting. Um, yeah. So it was just kind of crazy. And, you know, I just dismissed it and went back to my screenwriting. But the idea kept gnawing at me. And, oh, I love um, it. So I just said, you know, I'm just going to write it just for the fun of it. Just take a break from screenwriting. And... Um, you know, I really found that I loved the the process of writing a novel. It was very freeing. It was so different nice. than writing a screenplay to be able yeah, to totally you know, different write yeah. interior, you know, feelings and uh, write descriptions that mm -hmm. you know wouldn't see the light of day in uh, screenplay. Right. Um, well, let me ask you this real quick. So does that mean, so do you, do you feel like your dialogue was always your strength? Because to me, that's what a screenplay is. It's all dialogue. Right. You know? <laughs> yes. And I still feel like, yeah, my, my dialogue is a strength because yeah. uh, okay. I, you know, when I'm in the zone and writing, I can, f I can hear the character speaking in yeah. my yeah. head. Um, and it's, uh, I think dialogue is a great way to get into a character. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. imagining how they speak um, yes. you know um, one of my 
film professors at Northwestern suggested taking a recording and going to a cafe or something mm. and secretly record like your neighbor's conversation. Oh my goodness. Probably, <laughs> probably totally illegal, but you know, not with yeah. the intention of sharing it with anybody. Right, that right. is so funny. That Take- that takes the coffee shop eavesdropping to a new level. <laughs> I know it does. And just, we are not endorsing that no. on the show. No, and so, you, you know. know. <laughs> but I think, you know, the idea is but, to yeah, the idea that, is there. Yes, yes. And type up what, you know, write up what they say. Because that's what somebody sounds that. like. I mean, and really that's right. what people talking, sound yeah. like. As Alfred Hitchcock said, you know, movies are real life with the boring parts cut out. I like that. Um, yeah, so that take good. that and compress it, hone it into something that's readable, but, you know, capture that, um, that sense of uh, reality when people speak. Right, um, right. Yes. Because conversations don't flow. Like, you don't ask a question and someone answers it. It doesn't usually work that way. You ask a question and someone kind of responds to it, you know, with their own own thing. But, well, you know what? So we're almost nine minutes in. Let's talk a little (laughs) bit about the story. Um, So you've you've got this sort of red-blue in your background, Democrat and Republican, related to where you live. And that's obviously a lot about what this story is about. So you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, I'm a big news junkie. I uh, read the New York Times religiously. And, uh, you know, I often get uh, story ideas from the uh, uh, news. Um, Mm -hmm. I love speculative fiction. Mm -hmm. I love asking the question, what if? So a while back, I was reading an article about the uh, partition of India and Pakistan and how there was this unexpected surge of people moving to the other area, depending on whether they were Muslim or Hindu, and Mm. this violence that occurred. Um, Nobody really knows how many people were killed during that transition. Wow. When was this? This Oh, I'm not... 1900s or something? I mean, this is a ballpark. Um. So it would have been uh, 1940s, I okay. believe. Okay, um, yeah. But uh, don't quote me on that. Sure. But, um, you know, I had been thinking about this, you know, part- partition between red states and blue states and what might that look like. Yeah. Um, and the interesting thing about the division between Pakistan and India is after this um, surge of, of violence and and forced migration, there was like a collective amnesia. People didn't mm. talk about it. They didn't mm. want to talk about it. And that was the um, that was the inspiration for the story. Wow. Yeah, well, it's fascinating. It is, definitely. So how did you begin to write this? Because this is a unique perspective, right? So it's, how did, how did this come about, this particular POV and these characters you know i i often my my most creative time is when i'm falling asleep at night oh, and yes. i um you know i'll run through stories i'll run through characters and you know i may get uh five minutes in i may get 30 seconds in before i fall asleep and i just continually do that night after night and things just develop organically that's and neat. Now, do you write these things down or are no, they sticking in your head okay never because that's, i that's feel like yeah i feel like writing them down like um it 
it's too concrete. I just uh -huh. want to let my imagination flow and let it go in directions. I have no idea where it's going to go. Hmm. Um, often the characters in what I write are young women. Um, I have two daughters myself. Um, yeah. One's 22 now and one's 18, but this was mm -hmm. long before that. I think I'm, I'm drawn to people who don't have power in society yeah. and, you know, adolescent, pre-adolescent girls. I mean, it's hard to imagine anybody who does, has less power. Um, yeah, and certainly, you know, I can imagine, uh, you know, people of color who don't have power or things like that. But for mm -hmm. me, you know, writing from, from the voice of young women just, just uh, resonates with me. So um, I think those characters just kind of developed organically as I, um, I developed the story. I don't, beyond the germ of the idea, when it comes to a short story, I don't do any kind of planning or outlining. I just kind of start to write and revise and revise and revise. Right. That's very interesting. So when you're thinking of letting the story come to you, at what point do you decide, okay, now it's time to get to the page? <laughs> um, I think maybe when I'm sick of of thinking about it at night. <laughs> you have to get it out? Right. Uh, yes. I mean, I think uh, at some point I feel like, okay, I've got to get this on the page. Um, and, you know, off, sometimes I'll write like a draft or even part of a draft, get partway through it, and then I'll get distracted by something else. Or, um, oh. Hmm. Uh, the infamous shiny object syndrome. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, and so, but I'll come back to it and often yeah. um, that leaving it behind for a little bit is helpful yeah um, give a new perspective on it yeah yes i think huh. it, that is a very good point for listeners too i left the manuscript for two years and just recently got back to it i've been writing romance rom-coms and women's fiction for a while now but my first love was psychological thrillers and i got back to it and the story now is just really unfolding so doing that I didn't. I wasn't sure I was ever going to go back to it. But when you take a break, and you kind of let things simmer, and you can go back to it with fresh eyes, and you see some of the flaws that your so close self couldn't see. Yeah, so I think that's a, a great thing. Well, that's that's interesting, Melissa, because the book I'm working on now is a rom com. Oh yeah, that I originally wrote seven years ago and i was searching for a new idea i've been querying another novel and thought well i need to start something new and so i went back and reread it and i thought well i've learned a lot in seven years i can yeah. rewrite like this and make it better so is that the first one where that that you told us about a few minutes ago no 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 that um this is um as much comedy as um as romance. I love um, those. Those are my favorite. Yeah. So no, <laughs> this was cute. very yeah. different one. Yes. Um, so the, the novel I am querying now is actually closer to my people because the protagonist is uh, a 16 year old girl. It's set in the future. Um, it's called the librarians. Um, oh. She escapes her walled city where everyone is illiterate and and discovers this uh, post-apocalyptic wilderness that's nothing like what she was taught and um, journeys with these uh, 
people whose goal is to spread literature and reading to people that are on the edge of hope. So that's great. Wow, very I like cool. the premise. Yeah. yeah. So what genre would you call that? I'm calling it post-apocalyptic YA. <laughs> oh, very interesting. Um, that's niche. Yes. Well, I mean, there's a fair amount of books like that out there. So uh, if you've ever read Station Eleven, that's one that probably comes oh. close to it. It's a great novel. Check it out if you haven't. I have heard of it. I have not read it. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Well, I wanted to ask a question about your morning routine. You mentioned in the background materials that you sent us that you do three, like daily, you do three pages of stream of consciousness. So can you talk about that a little bit? That's actually not something I do anymore. That was one of Julia Cameron's exercises to kind of okay. break through any creative uh, cobwebs that you have. Okay. Um, so this I, was back when you had, didn't have the confidence of a writer. Exactly. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. It's... Now Strong Coffee does the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. My nephew says that coffee whispers the answers to him he's like yes oh my <laughs> gosh I, the I elixir of choice yes yeah. i'm having coffee right this minute so as yeah. am i <laughs> that's a great line melissa you should steal that for your book i actually did i put it in my novel yeah one of them i did because he when he said that to me i thought chandler that is so cute i'm using that in a book <laughs> I'm very much a morning person and uh, I make my coffee and have a little breakfast and sit down and write. And uh, by noon, I, my creative energy is usually spent. Mm. And um, so, you know, the afternoon is used for other things. Um, so do you so then you just get up and so you write every day? Uh, I try. I take the weekends off usually. Yeah, but okay. yeah, every weekday I write. I think it's important to, uh, you know, stretch those muscles. It's right. just like exercise. Um, yeah. I do, you know, I'm I'm a big cyclist and do yoga. And oh, cool. I know if I, you know, take too many days off that I can it's feel the, the yeah, atrophy. The so mm-hmm. um, I think yeah. it's the same with uh, writing muscle, too. You need to keep writing. I completely yeah, that's a great agree. Point. Yeah. 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 It's a skill just like everything else. And the more you practice, the better you get. That's all there is to it. Yes, that's right. exactly. Though I think, you know, we as writers always need to be learning and making progress. A friend of mine said this. Uh, I used to do like folk dancing kind of thing. And a friend <laughs> of mine who was very involved in it said, you know, there's the kind of people who have six months experience dancing than the kind of people who have uh, six times one month experience. Uh, Um, Right. I think we always need to be learning and evolving and honing our craft. I think that never ends as a writer. I think you're exactly right. I like that a lot. So you said you wake up early, but you don't stop writing until noon. So are Tell me what time do you start writing? Because that's uh, a long time, a potentially that's long a time. Good chunk. Yeah, of I mean, you, get... you know, if I'm walk the dog, have a little breakfast and things. You know, if I get started by eight thirty, that's that's good. If I get started by nine, that's fine. That's three hours a day. Um, yeah, that's and good. honestly, you know, I'm like you said about shiny things. I am easily yeah. distracted. You know, <laughs> the computer is a. Uh, 
plethora of distractions. It know? is. So, and then if you need to do a little research, you you like, what what was I doing? You research and an hour's gone by and you think, yes. oh yeah, I was writing a novel. <laughs> right. <laughs> I find that one of the best places for me to write is I take the uh, train to my day job and I have about 30 to 40 minutes there. I think about 30 minutes. And it's a perfect time for me to write because I have no internet on connection on my laptop. And uh, I know there's a finite period I have, yeah. you know, about the train is going to get to the station. So I can only do so much writing. So I feel it's very concentrated. And um, there's something magical about a train, I think. Yeah, I agree. I don't know that the L is that romantic. I've yeah. lived in Chicago long enough. I, I was the first time I wrote it, but not yeah. anymore. No matter what train I see and have been yes. on, and I've been on, you know, like a bus with on tracks that's essentially a bus. But anytime I think of a train, I think of like the Polar Express. I don't know why. My <laughs> mind defaults to that. So I'm picturing you with your laptop riding the Polar Express, these thoughts just coming to you. It's, it's fantastic funny. imagery. There are no dancing waiters, though. Yeah, oh, that's my too goodness. bad. You just ruined my life. <laughs> well, at least my morning. <laughs> well, you also mentioned uh, the importance of support groups in your writing journey. So mm -hmm. we have talked a lot about that on the show. Some people really enjoy critique groups. It, support varies in what that looks like for each writer. So what does that look like for you? And tell us about the importance of that. As I mentioned earlier, I uh, ran a screenwriting group for a number of years. Um, we meet at a cafe every three weeks and bring in pages and read them aloud and talk about them. And, you know, when the pandemic hit, I left the screenwriting behind a long time before that, but I really, you know, missed that camaraderie. Um, mm -hmm. And I saw somebody on Facebook mention Scribifile which is a website that's uh, for writers and you can uh, post work and other people critique it and you get credit for your critiques, which allows you to post your own work. And uh, hmm, interesting. I found it very useful as a way to, uh, you know, get that kind of first opinion. Right, um, right. And are these people in Scribifile, can you kind of self-select the genres that you are familiar with in other words you know if you did like a post-apocalyptic ya would those folks have read that do you know i'm just curious well they're not necessarily there's a lot of groups within scribophile some of them i belong to um and i actually you know as i was reading i came across writers whose work i really liked and uh, i miss that sense of a community of, of a small community of writers so right. I invited them to join our own uh, private writing group That's so cool. um, okay there's six of us in on in three countries oh. wow. uh, United States Canada and England so yeah. I called the group three flags That's um, cute. <laughs> and it's nice because you know we know one another we support one another you know when um we have good news, like yeah. getting published in a magazine. You know, we can share that. Um, right. I just think, you know, 
having a community is so important. I belong to the Chicago Screenwriters Association, or Chicago Writers Association here, um, which I haven't done much with yet, but they have a big writing conference in March, and I have been Mm. to there and met other writers. Um, And, you know, if for writers who have not gotten involved, in their community you'll find writers are a very friendly group because they always want you to buy their books (laughs) (laughs) the first thing you know when you meet a writer is they hand you their card and say oh you know check out my books um (laughs) that is so funny i I completely agree i think i've been working on a tip sheet and, and plans to do a video for things that i've learned along my writing journey things i wish i'd thought about earlier on and that's, that's one of them, is having somebody that you, as a writer, really in anything that you do, I think it's important to have people that are doing the same thing because they understand what you're going through and they can mm-hmm. give you that support. They know what it's hard. They know what's hard. They know what's easy. Um, they know when to celebrate and, and how exciting certain celebrations can be. And that really gives you a boost as a writer because it's lonely at times and it's really hard, especially when you're you're making yourself vulnerable by putting your words out for other eyes to see. Mm-hmm. And so I think having that community, I think you are so right, mm-hmm. is I... really important. And that community can look so different. You can have a critique partner. You can have a belong to a, an association. You can be on a Facebook group. I mean, it can vary so much. But just having that contact with somebody else, I think, is so great. Yeah. Well, let's talk about short stories a little bit. So how do you approach short stories versus, you know, the the novel form? And how did you get into it? Well, I originally wrote this short story. Actually, I wrote another one uh, previous to that. I'd never really, I'd written some, just some short stories just for myself, but never really thinking about publication. Yeah. Um, And I really wrote this would have been the previous story which is going to be published in another magazine next summer congratulations um, thank you yeah. uh and i really found it as uh, did it as a break from the novel i got the idea mm-hmm. and it's it's like instant gratification compared to a novel um, yeah, that's true you know a short story can uh, uh you know take a few weeks, a few days, a few hours, depending on how inspired you are, which, you know, <laughs> is never going to happen with a novel. Right. Um, so that's why I really enjoy the process of writing a short story. Um, yeah, that's cool. And I, I, I tend, ahead. I'm sorry, I tend to, which is easy. Like if I get to a place in a novel and then like come back to the next day, I'll often just start back at the beginning again and read through it and make a few Mm -hmm. changes and just keep doing that over and over until I finally get to the end. Interesting. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. That's definitely one approach that I've heard folks do. Others will just start where they left off because they don't want to get bogged down in the editing. It's like two different brains or something, but I'm with you. Sometimes I do, I do that as well. But it's one thing I find challenging on the short story side is, first of all, all of the magazines, there's such a range of how many words they'll accept. Yes. And some are only 3,000. And then you'll get up to like 7,500. But 
for me, the challenge is identifying how much description to include when you're trying to kind of get the the character personality across yeah. and the main elements of the plot. You know what I mean? And yeah. so I, I find that a lot of my stories are, you know, I, I love fantasy. I love science fiction. So I love those descriptions, but I don't put a lot of them in. <laughs> so, right. You don't have the so, room in a short story. I, well, you kind of don't. And so my question kind of to you, Eric, is so how do you decide or, or do you or what's your approach to that element of description versus plot and kind of pacing and all that good stuff? I like that question. I don't know that I have a um, specific uh, plan to do that. I'm yeah. as you know, as I'm revising, I will, you know, edit out things that are I feel like are unnecessary, or people mm-hmm. point out things that I don't really need. Um, right. I will, you know, sometimes tend to overwrite, so uh, I need to cut back some. <laughs> I know um, that I'm. I'm new enough to the process, uh, our two um, short story writing, that I haven't really thought any about uh, length. Um, yeah, it's yeah. just ends up, this is the length, and then I look for publications that will take that length. Right, right. Uh, you are not fitting into boxes, right? You will find the box that fits you. I like it. I'm much more aware of, of uh, word count in novels because I know, right. you know, each genre yeah. has kind of the accepted word count. Um, So, so far, I haven't run into that. I mean, obviously, there's magazines I've said, well, I can't submit to that because it's too long. But um, so you haven't yet tried to pair something from 5000 down to three. That's a challenge. No, not (laughs) yet. I'm not going to say that's not going to happen, though. Yeah, right. I mean, it's a good exercise in editing. That's for sure. It really is. But, you know, that's what professional editors do. They take the manuscript. And I think that um, I've heard one editor say that if she's not taking out at least 15,000 words, just little things that you you think you can't do without, then she's not doing her job. For a novel. For a novel, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, 15,000 words for a short story would be Yeah, that'd be like a a novella maybe or something, right? (laughs) (laughs) Great. All right, Eric, believe it or not, we're already kind of coming up on time here. And so we got about maybe four or so minutes left. Any question you want to ask, Melissa, before we switch over to our usual end question? Yes. So in your writing group, when you talked about that and, and you talked about support a bit, I think this is an appropriate question to who reads your materials first? Is it your critique group? Is it somebody closer at home? or Actually... The people who read my work first are usually other people on Scribophile, not necessarily my writing group there. That's um, interesting. Yeah. Well, because Scribophile, I'm, you, you're only supposed to post 3,000 words at a time. Okay. So um, this is one of the issues with Scribophile is that it can be difficult to find people who are reading each chapter, you know, so mm-hmm. it's not necessarily helpful. And oh, for a novel, a novel sure. yeah, to yeah. have somebody reading <laughs> chapter random, 23. Yeah. They randomly um, pop in and read that's that. That's yeah. so hard, yeah. <laughs> I mean, even with short stories, I've found sometimes if I'm trying to keep to the 3,000-word limit, you right. know, it's hard right. to get somebody it's- to... Um, uh, read both parts just because, you know, there's so many other things to read and people get distracted. So I tend to let you know, all these strangers read things initially, and Ooh. I have a, a thick skin, so, you know, I That's read I their comments yeah. Yeah. and, you know, ignore what 
I don't, don't think works. Use what I do think works. And then I save the people's opinion who I really value until yeah. uh, I have, a, you know, a, probably a second draft uh, and then ask them to read the entire book. Um, yeah. And, uh, and by that time, you know, I think I'm ready for all those comments too. So it's all a process. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, can you give us an idea? Like, do you know on average how many people read folks' stories? Like, is it 10 or 5 or 20? And, you know, how many comments or readers does, does one normally get on Scribophile? Yeah, there's, it's complicated. There's like a main spotlight where anybody can post and there's a personal spotlight where people who are your favorites can uh, critique. Hmm. Um, so, you know, generally I'll get like four to six critiques of any one piece. And, yeah. you know, it's particularly with short stories, I may I'll, I'll post a couple of drafts, you know. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll get some comments, rewrite post another draft, get some more comments. Um, so, you know, by the time it's all done, I've probably had, uh, you know, 10 to 15 people. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Piece. Yes. Right. Well, the reason I asked is I was just curious because it does seem like a pretty cool tool for finding the things that everyone's bumping on, right? So yeah. you, you have, people have different opinions about all kinds of you know, writing styles and techniques and even the wording order and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But if you have like, if you had like 15 and they all bumped on this one <laughs> issue in the story, then you're like, wow, that's a really good service. You know what I mean? Exactly. So, yes. I have a pretty a... good sixth sense to what works and what doesn't. Um, so, you know, when somebody points out something, uh, it, Usually immediately, I say, yeah, they're like, right. Oh, I'm going right, to fix right. that. Um, yeah. And I enjoy when people make suggestions on dialogue or description or things like that, because if I like it, I use it. If I sure. I throw it away and uh, that's perfectly fine. Yeah, that's great. Good. Very yeah. good. I think you have a, a positive, a healthy attitude toward that. I saw on social media recently somebody commented that every time somebody reads her work and she gets that critique back she goes through almost like almost like it's grief this the seven <laughs> steps of grief you know, oh my she's, gosh she's like hurt at first and then she's in denial and then she's angry and then she accepts and then she's grateful and i just thought that was so because i have felt that when you love something and you put it out there you're like no this this right. character should clearly not be what they're saying. This is absurd advice. And then you realize later, oh, maybe they were right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't I can't deny that I sometimes read the comments with gritted teeth. Oh, so. sure. <laughs> of I, course, yes. of course, sure. Of course. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've rolled my eyes at JW's comments. Oh, I, all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She almost like smirks and laughs off screen. You know. <laughs> um, great. All right, Eric. Well, it's been a lot of fun, but one of the questions that we always ask at the end of the show is if you could provide a writing resource or some advice that you've learned through your experience or your writer journey to new writers out there or even current writers that you think might be helpful, what might that be? And before you answer, I have to say, I hope you've listened to every single show so that you do not repeat any advice. That's, that's <laughs> no a requirement. Pressure. No, yeah, pressure. no pressure. No pressure. 
We actually haven't had one repeat yet. I know. I don't, I don't want it to happen now. <laughs> now it's like, oh, no, what are they going to say? Yeah. <laughs> I think, is that sweat I see on your I forehead? <laughs> yeah. Where's my towel, my p- podcast towel? Well, the pressure's on now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, well, I already mentioned Scribblefile as a very useful resource yes. for me. Yeah, I think um, great and if nobody has given this advice before, that's a very bad thing, I think. But, you know, when I did run a screenwriting group, we would have people who, you know, came for months and brought their work in and we would review it, and then they would disappear. Mm. And, you know, I would email them and said, oh, what's happening? What's going on? They, they'd say, oh, I haven't been writing. Uh, yeah. I, I got busy with work, or I got busy with kids. And I'm very understanding of that, but if you want to be a professional writer, you have to write. A writer mm. writes. That's the description of their work. You know, it's it's better to write 10 minutes a day than to take two weeks vacation and write in my mind Mm -hmm. Um, because I think we need to keep up that skill constantly. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I don't think anyone has actually said that in that way anyway. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I I agree. I think I always think of this as um, an example if you have a relationship with someone, you know, you don't have a really good relationship if you don't spend time with them. And I think it's the same thing with writing. You have a relationship with writing. And in order to really make it a solid relationship, you've got to spend time. So I love that. And you have to make love to the page occasion. Okay, okay, you just took it a step too far, Eric. <laughs> All right, good stuff. Well, Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show and, you know, sharing your piece with us. My People was really a fun read, and I'm sure our listeners enjoyed it. So thanks for the opportunity. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure, Eric. Thanks. Yeah, great. All right, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If so, please do us a huge favor and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to tell your writer friends. Ratings and word of mouth are our best tools for expanding the reach of the magazine and podcast. The Story Discovery Podcast is a free narrated podcast of works that appear in Etched Onyx Magazine. Edited by J.W. McAteer, all stories and poems are available at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you're feeling extra generous, you can support us at patreon.com slash onyxpublications or buymeacoffee.com slash onyxpublication with no S. As a nano publishing house, we are always looking for new works to showcase. If you'd like to submit a story or poems for consideration, please visit the submissions page on our website. In the meantime, keep reading and writing.